0: Probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. Projection. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact.
1: Welcome to the Thing Minute Podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper W. Harris from HarperWHarris.com, and joining me this week is...
0: Todd Cameron from Outpost31.com.
1: So, this is so awesome to have you on, Todd. I I think it's probably not an exaggeration to say you're the ultimate Thing fan.
0: Possibly, yeah. (laughs) I don't don't think that'd be much of a stretch at this point. We've been running the Outpost31 website for 16 years. So it's been it's been quite a trip and adventure. Um, the movie has really you know impacted my life at this point.
1: <laughs> yeah. So before we get into the minute um, of of the movie, do you want to tell us just a little bit about uh, Outpost Thirty One and kind of how that got started and and everything?
0: Yeah. Sure. So I first you know found the thing online in nineteen ninety nine, and I saw that there was already an existing fan site for it. And, you know, a discussion forum and a fan base. And I was a huge fan of the movie. And, to, you know, to get on the Internet then and find other fans and other people that love this movie as much and also a really cool fan site. It just, you know, I fell right into it. And uh, within a couple of years after that, in 2001, I launched Outpost31.com because the current fan site was not being updated anymore. Um, and I just wanted to do something new. It was coming up on the 20th anniversary and, a, and the video game was coming out. So the thing that year uh, was really rolling.
1: Yeah, and and just recently uh, the site got a got a major overhaul for the thirty fifth anniversary, right?
0: That's right, a much needed overhaul. The platform the site was on was quite old, you know, from from two thousand and one, uh, and I decided to to knuckle down and re- rebuild the entire site. It had kind of sprawled and grown over the years, and actually had almost had too much content. So right now, I uh, whittled it down to the best of the best. It's a brand new platform, and you know, fans are saying that they're actually there's more content on the site because what they can do is they can find what they're looking for easier. So,
1: Yeah. And uh, it's, I mean, the new site's fantastic. And I, I can definitely say that, you know, for this show, I've, I've used both the old and the new site a, a lot for, for research. So, you know, anybody listening to this show is obviously, you know, pretty interested in the movie. You definitely should check out the website if you haven't. And um, yeah, I, I think uh, yesterday I heard you had some, uh, some praise from a pretty interesting person
0: that's right actually i got an email from the man himself uh mr john carpenter just sent a, a very short email but uh he said the site looks fantastic so that's always a uh, very high praise to, to get the email from him um as well as his production company his wife um cast and crew sent some emails um Stuart cohen the co-producer uh joe polis thomas waits so it's nice to hear from them and get the feedback on on the website and uh, what we've done
1: yeah, that's so great. It's, I mean, that's one of the really cool things, too, about The is I think it's really created a, a cool community for, for both fans and people who worked on the movie have, have been really kind of actively involved and in kind of talking about it and, and things like that. So it's, you know, it's created something really cool. It's, it's definitely something to be really proud of.
0: Yeah, and with the, I got going on social media, I guess, late last year on Christmas time, so about half a year ago. And with the social media platforms, we're on Twitter, Instagram, we have a Facebook page and a Facebook group. The Facebook group has exploded. It's just a phenomenal group of people, um, high-quality posts, high-quality members, great content, and it's just taken off. So that's been really fun, too. And Stuart Cohn pops in a couple times a week to contribute you know, to the, to the questions and the fans, so it's, it's really, really cool.
1: Yeah, it's awesome. So, so definitely in, in the show notes for for this whole week, we'll have links to the to the uh, to the website, obviously, but also the the Facebook page and the group too. I definitely recommend people join that in to uh, to join the discussion. For sure. So um, today we're talking about minute eleven of the thing, which uh, starts with Clark and the dog kind of meeting for the first time, and then uh, it ends a minute later with Windows saying he can't reach nobody on the radio. Hmm. So um, this minute has got a, a good bit of stuff going on with some of the characters we haven't really been, uh, you know, fully introduced to yet at this point in the movie. So I figure as good a place as any is to start with uh, with Copper, who we get, I believe, his first lines of the movie are in this minute um, as he's stitching up Benning's. So Copper's played by uh, Richard Dysart, who uh, obviously was did a, a lot of TV work. Probably most notably, he was on L.A. Law for eight years. That's like a, that's 171 episodes, which is kind of insane. Wow. Uh, but he did, he's done a lot of other uh, interesting stuff too. He's on, uh, he's in Back to the Future 3. He does, uh, he did a lot of voice over work actually, which is, I didn't, I didn't know that, but I actually love his voice in this movie. So that doesn't, doesn't surprise me terribly. And yeah, so uh, he's, he's definitely one of the characters that I always kind of latch onto watching. I like his, uh, I've been kind of reading through as we go, the, uh, the descriptions in the script that uh, for each of the characters and for Copper, it says he's 45 professional, a decent man and a good doctor. I think that, that, describes him pretty well. But uh, obviously, Dysart brings a lot more personality to that character than that little description there. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, Dysart just passed away a couple years ago. Yeah, I believe he was uh, one of the oldest cast members. And he shot us a few emails over the years, so that was pretty cool to hear from him um, as well.
1: Yeah, I, I love his character kind of stands out for me too in that he's very kind of... He seems a little bit more enthusiastic than some of the other guys. The other guys are very like, it seems like they're kind of stuck on this base. Like they're not even sure maybe how they got here, how they ended up in this mm-hmm. situation. But Copper's very like, no, I'm ready to do this. Like, let's, let's go check this out. Let's go find the, these, uh, these Norwegians and see what's going on that's, over there.
0: I was actually just reading a post about that this morning from someone that said, you know, he, he was of them all. He seemed like the least deserved to die. And he died kind of a horrible way too, trying to trying to help somebody else. Yeah,
1: that's um, true. <laughs> Yeah, and one one of the other things I always—it's—it's uh, funny. Every time I or up until recently, when I started kind of you know doing a really deep dive into the movie, I always forget about his nose ring, and I don't notice it until way later in the movie. And I I, just, I always think that's kind of a, a interesting little detail that you know, especially for the doctor of the camp, he's probably the person you'd least expect uh, to have yeah. <laughs> to have that. Yeah, up.
0: I think it was part of the build for his character. He had the copper nose ring, and he's he wears two large copper. Uh, bracelets throughout the movie as well.
1: Um, I never made that connection.
0: um, He's also one of the actors who pulls a full frontal at one point as well. (laughs)
1: That's right. Yeah. I've read about that. I haven't haven't gone through frame by frame to, uh, to examine that yet, but I've heard. (laughs) So we also get, uh, uh, well, also with that scene, I should mention, you know, as he stitches up Benning's, that's one of the first of many kind of, you know, uncomfortable moments for people who have kind of medical phobias. I know John Carpenter talks about in the in the commentary that in a lot of the screenings uh it wasn't the monsters that made people like really you know uncomfortable and uneasy it was all this all the uh very close-up shots of like stitches and hypodermic needles (laughs) right so
0: and and the the scalpel cuts
1: yeah yeah oh yeah that one that one used to get me for sure Mm -hmm. so um yeah i think maybe that's one of those things that you know i think he obviously intentionally put in there as as something to you know a real world thing that definitely kind of adds to the unease and and you know makes you just generally uncomfortable with the situation (laughs) right so we also get introduced to uh to windows here later on in the scene uh so windows got kind of an interesting backstory with the uh with the script so um Mm -hmm. i believe in the in i can't remember if his character's in the book or not um but uh yeah he's called uh, sanders in the novelization oh that's right yeah and so sanders and then um it was sanchez in the script but it sounded like carpenter didn't want to be Uh, When they were casting, he didn't want to be locked into casting a, a you know Hispanic actor necessarily for it, so they changed it to Sanders in the script and that was the name of the character until um Thomas Waits was in the uh the when they were kind of reading through and doing rehearsals he decided to put on the sunglasses and and uh and go by windows which i know uh, in some of the behind the scenes stuff it sounded like some of the actors were a little kind of rolling their eyes at that um mm-hmm. which is kind of funny but it definitely you know it adds to the uh i like that a lot of the characters have go by these kind of nicknames
0: Right, it's pretty cool that Thomas waits named his own character too. He's he's pretty proud of
1: that. Yeah, definitely. And and it's, you know, it's definitely one of those kind of iconic things. Windows is uh, you know, he he lasts outlasts a lot of these guys. He's definitely one of the kind of uh, major players. So his description in the script is uh Windows is 21. He's the radio operator. He hates it there and he's lousy at his job. Mm-hmm. So um I guess it's uh that's one thing to talk about is you know I I find it I always find it interesting that they don't necessarily go into a lot of detail on why he has such a hard time reaching anybody you know this this whole scene um, and a little bit of the next minute he talks about how you know he hasn't been able to reach anybody for weeks so Mm -hmm. you know what why is that necessarily I mean is it just the weather or is or is it that he's a bad uh, radio operator.
0: That's a really good question, and uh, I'm I'm working on a couple of projects with the film right now for the future. And uh, in speaking with some Antarctic researchers and scientists who are who are there and have also worked there, um, that no matter how bad a storm or a blizzard, it won't put the radio out in Antarctica.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: Oh, so, yeah. So there's definitely something else going on there. And you know, we know the Norwegians have been there prior, not too far away, and they've been poking around the the, uh, the ship. So
1: yeah so it's it's just one of those things i mean I, obviously for the reasons of the plot, we know why that you know it's they they it increases that kind of isolation and it cuts them off from being able to you know call for help or anything like that but you know it is it is kind of interesting that they established this early on even before obviously Blair wrecks all the the radio equipment that they they can't reach anybody mm-hmm so uh, I had a, a little bit of information about um, who he's trying to call. So he's trying to call McMurdo, which um, you know so- sounds like uh, given the kind of research you've been doing lately, you probably know a, a good bit more about this than I do. But uh, McMurdo I think, it's the biggest base in uh, in Antarctica. It's, it's on the south tip of Ross Island. It's the biggest community there. It's capable of housing uh, 1,258 individuals, uh, which is, I guess, a lot for, uh, for a base in Antarctica. I don't think there's that many people living there in, in general. But one of the interesting pieces of trivia that I, I found out about it that I thought was kind of funny is that McMurdo has the only two ATMs on Antarctica, which <laughs> is like you have to wonder why you even really need an ATM when you're in Antarctica. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Well,
0: McMurdo's like a small city, especially in the summertime. You know it's uh, it's got a, quite a high population. It's also pretty far from where the output, the fictional outpost 31 would be. Windows would actually be have much better luck probably trying to contact the Munson Scott South Pole station, which mm-hmm. would be much closer to the to the fictional outpost 31. And it's interesting that you know it's called Outpost 31, but you'll note the sign says Station Four. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I might have figured out why it's called Station Four is there's three U.S. Antarctic bases in ah. Antarctica. And Outpost Thirty-One might be the fourth station. So,
1: ah, oh, that's interesting. I, yeah, I always wondered about that too. Um, yeah. So, and uh, Munson Scott is the one that's like, right, it's on the South Pole, right?
0: Pretty much at the pole. Yeah, I believe just over a thousand miles from uh, where Outpost Thirty-One would be. Um, Outpost Thirty-One was fairly close to the coast, and ironically, located in Norwegian territory.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I've, I noticed that too. Looking at looking at kind of the map of where things are divided up. Yeah, so uh, that kind of gives you an idea of a little bit of the geography, I guess, which is kind of kind of cool. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they also mentioned in this minute that it's the first week of winter. So I looked up some numbers that that means that the uh, average temperature uh, would be about uh, close to negative ten degrees Fahrenheit or negative twenty three degrees uh, uh, Celsius, which is obviously pretty cold. Um, it also yeah. means that, uh, they would have no, they would, this would be, if it was really the first day of winter, it means that they would start to have no sunlight, which lasts for four months.
0: This is uh, something I've put some time into researching. So I, I had it all figured out basically on um, the first week of winter in Antarctica starts on February 28th. That is when they seize all air travel in and out. So by late February, you're going to, you're going to be there when winter over, you're already there. So, and then that lasts six months, a full wow. six months, unless it's an extreme emergency. And even then, there's absolutely pretty much no air travel. So, for those people who are there at those three U.S. bases and all the other international bases, they are basically isolated and stuck there for as long as six months. And essentially, that's because of the deep cold. The planes just cannot fly in, in anything. I think it's below minus 40 Celsius. They will not fly planes. Um, that's starting to get ridiculously cold. So. Yeah. Um, and as for the sunlight, that's a really interesting one that comes up. And recently I, I researched it, so I knew myself that's the right answer. And we see daylight and night in the movie. And even in the first week of winter, that would be correct based on where Post 31 is. They would definitely have pretty much a, a short day, but, but a, a full day. I believe it was from like 9 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. They, w- they would have sun up and then a long night. But it's not a, um, a goof that there is night and day in the movie.
1: Ah, yeah, that's interesting. You you do hear that brought up every once in a while. So it, it's it's not that I guess because it's the beginning of the winter. It's still there's mm-hmm. still a little bit of daylight, but it, it just gets shorter every day, kind of thing.
0: Right, and midwinter is June 21st, which for us here in the northern hemisphere is the first day of summer. Yeah. Um, by then, their days would be pretty darn short. They probably got like a four-hour day, you know, at that point, and uh, and then at the pole, it would definitely be dark, you know, for a good three-month period.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it always kind of surprises me that they don't kind of mention either mention that or kind of use that. I guess talk about that in the movie. Uh, that it seems like that kind of you know eternal night theme would go very well with the the isolation and you know the kind of impending doom that's happening to these characters. Right.
0: Yeah, it would have been creepier, but they would have had to have been located at Ray at right the South Pole for for it to be permanent night.
1: Yeah, that's true. So I guess one of the other kind of really interesting things about this minute in particular is that uh, this is where one of the first big um, deleted scenes uh, took place. Uh, not, not necessarily big, but one of the ones that kind of can impact some of the mythology of the movie and things like that. So there's a deleted scene where they're uh, kind of, you know, looking over the the body of the Norwegian, and this is where you would actually have found out the Norwegian's name. It is, would have been uh, Jans Bolin would, it was on mm-hmm. the dog tags. And there's kind of a, a funny little exchange in that deleted scene with um, – or not deleted scene necessarily, but, uh, you know, something that was in the script – with Gary trying to figure out what the Norwegian was saying. And at first he asked Childs and uh, asked him if he recognized anything. And that's where we get kind of one of the famous kind of deleted lines, I guess, when he says, uh, am I starting to look Norwegian to you, Bwana uh, <laughs> Which yeah. is pretty good. And then uh, apparently he asked Norris right after that. And Nor- Norris is like a very different character in the script, I think. It's just kind of funny. He's uh, Norris plays a really big part in the um, in who goes there. Uh, And in the script, it seems like he's a little bit more kind of aggressive, too, than he is in the movie. Yeah, he asked Norris what he said, if he knew what he said, which is maybe not a, uh, you know, a totally crazy question to ask, because Norris was the one who knew that it was Norwegian just based on Norge. But Norris says, yeah, I caught that he wanted the better part of my ass to come apart. Right, (laughs) Which is a pretty, pretty interesting line.
0: The novelization is pretty cool because it follows the script fairly closely and just expands on it.
1: Yeah, I, I haven't been able to track down a copy of that yet, but I, I've been really interested too, because I, yeah, I know that it, you know it differentiates from the movie a lot, and that you know it does follow the script and has a has a very different ending from the movie, obviously.
0: Yeah, um, you know, and and the, the novelization is a solid solid story as well. You know, it's it's, it's it has the, the, the infamous lights out sequence and also the the chase after Dogtown out onto the ice. Where, where that's where Benning's dies in, in, in that story. Very very creepy scenes that were that were cut from the movie uh, for time and money, but uh, solid solid story in itself.
1: Yeah, and it's um, yeah, I mean it's definitely one to. It sounds like it's something to track down for people who are big fans of the movie because. Um... Yeah, I mean, obviously, it adds a lot of kind of detail, like, like all novelizations, it adds a lot of detail that they're not able to kind of include in the movie or, you know, people's kind of internal monologues and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, Al- Alan Dean Foster wrote like thousands of these. I mean, I think he's still doing it, actually. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, he's, he's definitely one of the, the top tier guys for doing this. So it's definitely, you know, something worth, uh, worth seeking out. I'm trying to think if I had anything else specifically for this minute. Anything you wanted to kind of bring up regarding minute 11 of the movie?
0: Well, it looks like it's going to start with, uh, an introduction to one of the characters here, Jed, who is the, uh, Oh, that's right. Yeah. Alaskan Malamute Wolf Cross, who has, uh, you know, a very famous role in this movie, uh, almost perfectly acted by the dog. It couldn't, couldn't have been done better. The dog was trained by Clint Rowe and, uh, I, th- I guess uh, Bennings was, was very nervous of uh, of the dog. Peter Maloney uh, was very nervous of him, which kind of added to, to a couple of the scenes because he interacts with the dog twice. And uh, I was speaking with him in New Jersey at Monster Mania, and he was saying that he was a little nervous of the dog, kind of apprehensive, which kind of added to his, his acting with, with the animal.
1: Yeah, you have to wonder if Carpenter did that on, on purpose because, uh, uh, you know, it, it's not, like, specific to Bennings that you have to have. He's the one who right. gets, like, jumped on and who the dog, like, you know, scares him under the table and stuff. That doesn't have to be Bennings, but, yeah, it definitely adds to it. You can tell that he's kind of uncomfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and actually, you you might know this. I was curious because I know a lot of the um, those first shots of the dog running through the snow are, are not Jed. They're, um, you know, I guess a stand-in, a dog that they painted to look like Jed. Um oh, right. That's a really good question because that's one of the few things that I don't have the 100% solid answer to yet. Is that the,
0: the dog chase at the beginning wasn't filmed in Stewart, in D.C., it was filmed up in Juneau, Alaska. Mm-hmm. And that's quite far from Stewart, you know, a plane flight away. And I have heard that that, that was another dog they'd used for those sequences and those shots. Um, but I'd also heard, I believe, from Stewart Cohn that he said, no, they used the same dog for the whole movie. So that's something that I don't have the answer to yet. One of the few things that I need to track down and, and sort out. But, yeah, there are two different locations. So Juneau, Alaska, and then Stewart, BC, which is where the, the camp set is.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I was, I was always curious about which, you know, if, if there is a second dog, which shot is the first time we actually get to see Jed. And I wonder if it's – if I had to guess, I would say, you know, given that Jed is kind of – has that real signature look, especially with his eyes. Um mm-hmm. I, I would I would guess it's either this, you know, in this minute where we see him with Clark or it might be that that minute uh, earlier on when he turns around and looks back at the helicopter. Um, then when he passes
0: the sign and the oil drum, I think that if there is a double dog, then it would be then that would be Jed because that would be Stewart.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, that's one of the kind of mysteries, I guess, at this point still. Uh, it's on
0: my list. Of, of- <laughs> start out here. Uh, one of the projects I'm working on, and that's one of the questions
1: I, I'd like to find out a little bit more about. Yeah, for sure. I'd be interested to, to learn that as well. All right. So I think that will wrap up uh, Minute 11 for, uh, for The Thing Minute. So uh, make sure you check out uh, the website and Facebook and, and Twitter and all that, but also uh, for sure, check out outpost31.com as well as the Facebook page and the group there as well. And we'll, we'll have links to that up on the show notes. And until tomorrow, we'll be back for another episode of The Thing Minute. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. You can also find us on Twitter at thethingminute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thethingminute. But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper signing out.